Good morning to you. I take it that I'm on. Good. Thank you for your warm welcome. Don't believe a word that Daniel Douglas spoke. He said you had to study for six hours. Daniel didn't ever study. <laughs> no, he did. He, it's a joy to have had the privilege of being involved with Daniel's journey and now Micah's journey. It's a joy to be here at Calvary. This is the first time that I've been able to come and share with you. And I can't wait till the end of the service when I can find the time to walk over to that window and see what kind of view you have. I know it's a beautiful view. Thank you for your kind invitation. I wonder if you've ever read a story that has changed your life. Albert Schweitzer was born January the 14th, 1875. He had many natural gifts and abilities. Schweitzer was an, a brilliant philosopher. He was a gifted musician, and they said that his organ playing was something to behold. His interpretation of Johann Sebastian Bach's Music was breathtaking as he played it out on the organ. He was not merely a great philosopher and musician, but he was a medical doctor, a surgeon. To add to that, he was a theologian and a linguist. Albert Schweitzer grew up in Alsace-Lorraine, and in 1913, he read a story that changed his life. He read the parable that I'm about to read to you in a few minutes. And when he read the parable in Luke 16 of Dives the rich man and Lazarus the beggar, he said, we in Europe are the wealthy, the rich. And out there in Africa lies the destitute beggar Lazarus. And that parable changed his life. From that moment in 1913, he set sail and he went to the west part of Africa, French Equatorial Africa, the modern-day Gabon, and there in the mosquito-infested swamps of Lamborghini, he lived out his life until he died at the age of 90 in 1965. While he was out there in Lamborghini, his first consulting room as a doctor was a chicken coop in 1952, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he, he took the $33,000, and he extended his hospital, and he began to work with the lepers and established a base of compassion in this leper colony. A parable that changed a life. Jesus' parables are about the stuff of life. A man goes out to see, sow seed. He broadcasts it. He throws it among different soils and ground. He tells the story about a sheep that is lost, about coins that are lost, about two sons, an elder son and a younger son that are lost. He talks about the kingdom of heaven as a great pearl, as a net. Jesus' parables are about the stuff of life, but they're not merely about the stuff of life. They are stories that demand a verdict. They are provocative. 
Here's a good word for college. They are iconoclastic. They shatter the traditions. They're like Paul Harvey's, the rest of the story. They have a barb, a sting in the tail. You feel like a gunpowder has been left, the residue on your hands when you've heard of Jesus' parable. Jesus' parables are dynamite. They have a picture half and a reality half. Let's read together about this parable this morning that we will address. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The neighbor is at the gate is the title that I want to use for this message. Our neighbor, the neighbor, is at the gate. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abram, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The picture half of the story, the parable This is way beyond an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning, a simple definition of a parable. The picture half is of two neighbors who have never met in life and have never met in death. They have never met in life because they stand at the opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. One is a wealthy Palestinian plutocrat The other is a beggar, a destitute, poor-stricken man by the name of Lazarus. Their social designation has left them wide apart. They are neighbors, but they have not met in life. Scene one in Jesus' story. We notice 
the rich man. The Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the scriptures begun by Jerome back in the fourth century AD has the word rich, which means and has been taken to mean the one here in the story, let's name him. He's anonymous in richness, but the name that has been tagged on him fairly or unfairly by the Latin Vulgate is divers. The word oozes wealth, richness. And the man who is called divers is characterized in the opening verses as one who is noticed by his fashion and by his fare, F-A-R-E, what he eats. Notice his fashion, his outer garments. They are garments that are colored purple. These are garments that have that insignia which designates wealth. For the purple dye, and by the way, it's debated whether it was a shade of scarlet or a shade of violet or a shade of blue. Let's just call it purple. That purple dye came from the Phoenicians who would maraud the eastern Mediterranean sea line looking and coastline looking for these sea snails, murex. And they would crush the murex shells and out of that they would get this expensive dye. He is habitually dressed in purple clothes. These are not special clothes for a special moment. These are clothes that he wears commonly. This is the ordinary apparel of this rich man. Flashy clothes every day. His inner garments, fine linen. Literally, the Greek means woven air. This woven air, this flax that could have come from the fields of Egypt or just down south of Galilee from Bethshan this incredible city on the other side of the Jordan River, the only one of the 10 cities on the western side of the Jordan River, it was there in March at Bethshan, an incredible sight. Maybe the flax came from there, and Jesus' hearers would understand it. But his underwear is woven air. They would use that fine linen to mummify pharaohs, if I can make up a word, to wrap the bodies of the deceased pharaohs in this fine, silky linen. If, if Dives had lived in our world today, he would have made the top 10 dressed men in Palestine every year. The text doesn't tell us, but using my imagination, he would drive a Porsche or Corvette today. In his day, no doubt he had a chariot and it had as his license plate, top dog in town. He was a man who had fashion. It was resplendent. It was noticed. It was glamorized. He was the leading star in the constellation. But notice that his fashion is congruent, is consistent with his fair. What he eats is sumptuous and coordinates, connects with his fashion. No doubt he was served roast boar, wild pig, turkeys, chicken, Caviar, maybe, and wines exported from Rome. His table was full of good food. And to go back and reach into verse 19, he lived brilliantly. He lived sumptuously, resplendently. He lived in the fast lane, and the Greeks suggest he drank to the bottom, bottom of the cup of pleasure. This man, Dives, in his opulence, in his ostentatiousness, in his extravagance, 
in his indulgence. But contrast that with the beggar Lazarus, whose name means God helps. The third most common name in Jesus' day, Lazarus. God helps. Where is God in this initial story? The God who helps. For when we look at Lazarus, if we see fashion and fair for divers, we see poverty and plight for Lazarus. The word that is used for his poverty is not the normal Greek word that we find for poverty. That normal Greek word, penes, suggests someone who lives on the breadline, someone who is subsistent. The word that is used here is the Greek word potokos, which has the meaning which we find in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the same word that is used for the poverty of this beggar. It's a poverty that drives you to crouch down and to cower because you're broken by the burden of economic life. What a graphic picture of Lazarus. Broken by economic poverty. But I think the text suggests even a brokenness physically. For the, the text says that he was thrown down heedlessly in the ditch or at the gate to make his pitch each day. There's a suggestion in the word thrown down that he was a cripple. His plight. And in his crippledness each day, his body is covered not just with soiled rags, but it's covered with sores, ulcerous, pussy sores, running sores. And this beggar longed and yearned. Like in the previous chapter, the prodigal out there in Luke 15, 16, who longed and yearned for the wild black carob pods that the swine ate, his belly longed for that. The prodigal's belly longed for those wild black carob pods. The belly and stomach of Lazarus longed for the crumbs that fell under the rich man's tables. In those days, the crumbs would have been napkins made of bread. The bread, hunks, hunks of bread would have been torn away from the table and they would have been used to cut the grease of the bloated man, rich man's fingers, and then thrown under the table, probably to the pedigree cocker spaniels of that rich man. That's what Lazarus longed for, a greased up slice of chunk of bread. His poverty and his plight. Neighbors in life that have never met. But come to scene two, the next life. And you will see that these neighbors will not meet at death, after death. Now there's the great reversal. Now there's the great exchange. Now Lazarus dies first. Lazarus is the insider and at peace. But before we get there, let's go back to Lazarus's death. No doubt that lifeless or that broken body that was thrown down at the ornate gate of the rich man each day, now died, exhausted by it and emaciated by poverty, that lifeless body, the corpse, was thrown out of the city gate into a dunghill grave, an anonymous pauper's grave. 
But now, escorted by angels, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. An image, a metaphor of being in the presence of God, safe, at peace, at last. God helps. The rich man has finally died from his exquisite French cuisine and life in the fast lane. No doubt his wake, his funeral was as grand as his soirees during his life. What a send-off for this Palestinian plutocrat, Divers. But we find him now in the opposite role. Yes, he was known in life, but now in the next life, he is the outsider. He is in torment in Hades. And this one who is in torment now cries out to Father Abraham with the same arrogance that he lived his life with. Send the lackey servant Lazarus to come with his finger dipped in water so that it might quench and slake my thirst. Abraham reminds him that your decisions in life have ultimate irrevocable consequences. He reminds them that there's a fixed gulf that has been set, a chasm between Hades and the bosom of Abraham. He reminds them that this has been fixed by God. This is a divine passive in the Greek. God is the one who has fixed the chasm and the gulf. And if you go back into Second Temple Judaism, they believe that there was an outpost from that part of Hades and that part of heaven. And they could see each other from the other side. I'm not saying I'm buying into it. I'm sharing what Second Temple Judaism saw. And Abraham says to Lazarus, says to Dives, he's looking across at Lazarus, send him my way. And Abraham reminds him, there's a gulf that cannot be bridged or crossed. Well, at least send him with a handful of telegrams to my five brothers And Abraham in intent says, I've sent him a barrel full of telegrams. The Bible's full of the telegrams, the prophets, Moses. If you read those scriptures, he would understand those brothers of yours. The great reversal. Well, that's the picture half. What does the parable have to say in the second half, the meaning to you and to me today? Because this story has meaning in Jesus' day and it has meaning in my day. And as I look at this parable today, I'm going to use some of my personal life stories to indict myself because I too often have not recognized the neighbor at the gate. This parable censures us if we're transparent and we're honest. And it leaves us with a challenge. Censure first. Too often we travel through the road of life with callous indifference. What was the crime of Dives, the rich man? The crime of Dives was that he never noticed Lazarus at his gate. The gate in the ancient Near East world was a place of justice. It was a place of judgment. The rich man's gate judges him for his lack of compassion The rich man never noticed the need of Lazarus. He never answered the need of Lazarus. 
He just accepted Lazarus's condition as part of the natural warp and woof of life, conditioned without any pathos or pang or grief. Not only was there this callous indifference, but there was this myopic vision. Yes, he was blind spiritually, this rich man, but he was in desperate need of heart surgery. He needed to be injected in a sense with a new understanding of compassion for the beggar that was at the gate. He seemed to just ignore the desperate need and grief of this blind of this Lazarus. Blindness that was inexcusable. Myopic vision. We travel through our lives and we don't see what we should see. I remember as a young seminary student in Texas, beginning my PhD studies and then going to a church in Oklahoma, just by God's coordination. You talk about this church across the Red River in Texas, into Oklahoma. This was a tough town. This was a frontier town. This was a rugged town. I got two and a half years, 20 years experience in two and a half years in that town. And that was the second longest tenure of the, any pastor in that church. I was a rookie, Greenhorn, a Brit, coming to Oklahoma. You be in Oklahoma? That was a square in a circle. And I remember in one of those first few weeks, going out with my Sunday school director to visit someone who could not come to church, who was locked in, shut in by physical struggle. Now, this Sunday school director was something else. He was one of these guys who thought that, like the U.S. Supreme Court, you were elected for life. He was a rough guy. He decided you educated stray cats with a pellet gun. He was a rough dude. And he took me to visit this lady. And I remember us knocking on the back door. I remember the bark. I remember the bin. I remember the blindness. And I remember the brokenness. The bark. When her gruff voice says, come in. We went in as after we opened that door. And I expected to see a woman there with a 12-gauge shotgun. There she was sitting in a wheelchair, the bark, the bin as we sat there and talked and visited, and the trash and the garbage hadn't been taken out in days, and as I sat there talking with her, the waves of nausea just hit me one after the other. I remember the blindness, she couldn't see me, her eyes were dim. But there in that blindness, figuring out that this was not somebody from Oklahoma, this accent was somewhere far off. The blindness, the brokenness. As I looked down at those hands that were on top of the wheelchair, those arms that were scarred with sores, those nails that were unkempt and so long and uncut, the hair that was so greased that hadn't been washed in weeks. And I remember the prayer of a a young learning seminary student. God help me to begin to not be so blind. To see the neighbor at the gate. I don't learn too well, too quickly. We traveled as missionaries to Cape Town. I went home to southern Africa. 
And I remember as we settled into this new assignment of teaching at the seminary in Cape Town, I remember while we were there, one of my neighbors, we just arrived and we were there about six months and I remember the neighbor had a daughter, a teenage daughter, but he was divorced and he lived here with his teenage daughter and then within six months they were packing up to move on out. And before he left that day, I felt constrained, guilty that I hadn't gone to meet him. I didn't even know his name. And I went over to him and just before he left, I said, I'm David. Tell me your name. I'm sorry that I haven't come by to see you before you left. And he said, I'm Ian. I'm Ian. I've been sent as a foreign missionary across the world, 10,000 miles away, to talk about God's grace. And yet I cannot walk across the street or walk next door and say to Ian, here am I. Who are you? Let me find out about your life story. And by the way, when Jan left that day, I didn't tell you that he had one leg. And here he'd moved his house on his own with his teenage daughter. We too often live our lives at a distance. We live like the Levite and the priest passing by the other side. We see people each day, but we do not see them. We're in gridlock in our lives. We snarled up by that compulsive cycle of busyness that refuses to connect with the brokenness of humanity around us. There's still hundreds and thousands of bodies that are half dead on that Jericho road to Jerusalem and we keep passing by like the priest and the Levite. And this parable says to me, invite the stranger to your table. Move out of the cliques and that which is familiar. How you serve others is a demonstration and exhibit of how much you care and are loyal to God. Invite the stranger into your world. Risk. Move out of that comfortable zone. Move out of being comfortably inconsequential week after week because we will not risk to bridge over and touch those who desperately need the fingerprints of God's grace through our lives. The different, the tax collector, the ostracized, the sinner, the publican. Jesus noticed people He was sensitive. He was compassionate. He saw Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. He saw Nathaniel communing under the fig tree. He listened to the woman at the well who he desperately knew needed intimacy that really counted and dignity. The woman that went running back into her village said, come see the Messiah. Let me paraphrase. Come see a man who really listened to me, my broken heart. It was Jesus who felt that incipient touch of faith of a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And when she touched him, he knew. And he gave her the freedom to go back to church again after 12 years of being unclean. The Jesus who heard the beggar in Jericho, Bartimaeus crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and rescued the blind man. And read the end of Mark there, that chapter 8. The blind man, Bartimaeus, now seeing, goes up to Jerusalem with Jesus as a disciple. So when I read this text, it challenges me, it censures me. Do we see our neighbor at the gate? My students teach me far more than I teach them. I remember teaching at Southwestern Seminary. There was a quiet student, didn't cause any waves, just got on with his business for two semesters under New Testament introduction with me. David McDonald. David McDonald met his wife, Carrie, and they went scuba diving in the Red Sea, spent a Christmas and New Year in Bethlehem and dated, and they got together and they went out to Iraq. It was the Ides of March, March 15th, 2004. They went to Mosul, Mosul, that we're trying to take now, Mosul, across the Tigris rivers. There's the ancient Nineveh. And David and Kerry and three other Southern Baptist missionaries, as some of you may know, were coming back. They'd gone out into this part of the world to mine down into the earth so that they could find water. But behind that physical living water, they wanted to provide spiritual living water as well. And as they came back that evening, their car was intercepted in an ambush. And David and the other three were killed in that ensuing battle terrorist act I visited Kerry his wife 10 days later in Parkland Hospital in Dallas where they took Kennedy November 22nd 1963 same hospital as I looked at Kerry's broken body out of her brokenness and the lostness of her mate she was able in essence to share with me how she had gone compelled by the will of God to the dangerous places, to the violent places, where the neighbor for her, her gate, was Mosul in Iraq. You remember Jonah? We like Jonah too much. Descendants of Jonah, rebellious, cantankerous. We want to go the opposite way, not to Nineveh. Maybe we've been swallowed up by our civilization too much. We've got so comfortable that we can no longer hear the whisper of God in our life. And he says to you and to me today, where's your neighbor? Calvary Baptist Church, your neighbor is at the gate. University students, your neighbor is in the corridors and the lecture room. Businessmen and businesswomen, your neighbor sits with you week after week at the office. He sits to us as his children. I came to the gate. I entered into the breach of history. I came in that first Noel when there was light at midnight. I died on that cross. And then there was resurrection, that cross, that cross that Friday where there was midnight at daylight. And then the resurrection light of my being resurrected and triumphing over the frontier of death. I came so that you might know me and travel with me. And as I touched others, you too would touch others. 
with my love and with my grace. The challenge is profound. I cannot take the fifth on this one. Guilty as charged. Move too quickly through life. Oblivious too often to those who need a listening heart and a touch of love. God, show us our neighbors today. Do you know where they are? God will bring them your way. Let us pray. Father, this is not an easy message. This is a message that holds our hearts and our feet to the fire. We cannot drift through life without accountability. Help us to find space and grace for those who live in such brokenness and wretchedness. Help us to see with new eyes what Jesus sees. Lord, if we call ourselves Christian, Christ followers, then we must imitate you. And your life is such a clear example of tenderness, strength, inclusion of those who are broken and fractured. Thank you for your forgiveness. Stir us, move us. see our neighbors maybe just across the suburb where we live the workplace where we spend much of our week to week help us in our own families to see our neighbor with your eyes we pray in Jesus name